Thank you. All right, so this morning we read the first 20 verses of Matthew 18, and tonight I, I just want to read, or this afternoon I just want to read uh, verse 15 uh, through 20, and those are the verses that we'll take up. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you and you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And then you go on to read in verse 21. So Peter asked the question. So follow up to all this. Peter asked the question. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, Peter saying, okay, Lord, let's say I do this. So if he comes, if, if, if I confront him or he comes to me or something like that, and I got, how many times? Seven times? That's a bunch. And Jesus then tells him, no, you got to keep forgiving him, which is what we want from Christ. So this morning we looked at verse 15 and this passage about confrontation um, and about uh, I mentioned about how it has to do with loving our family and will we follow Christ and all that. And then um, it has to do with the subject that we normally call church discipline. And um, one of the best statements that I think there is about church discipline is in our Westminster Confession of Faith. As a chapter entitled Church Censures. And that paragraph gives the reasons why it is so important to exercise church discipline. It is very disheartening and discouraging that elders in the church, not just other believers, but that elders in the church hesitate to practice church discipline when. It uh, is called for, and when there is blatant sin in the congregation. In recent weeks, I know of church members who have confronted their elders in uh, churches because there was blatant sin, and people had not, uh, the elders had not addressed it, or if they had addressed it, they'd been dragging their feet about addressing it. I told um, one person, I said, the way some churches deal with church discipline, it reminds me of one of the uh, uh, one of the different theories about creation. So you know, there's different different views of creation, and some views of creation is that the first that one day was you know millions of years or thousands of years or whatever and then the second day was the same way and that's sort of the way that the view of creation is sort of the way that some elders approach church discipline Jesus says you go and confront them 
And then if they don't repent, then you take witnesses. And the elders sort of seem to put a long period of time between all these different steps when it seems to me that Jesus is pretty much concerned that this takes place pretty quickly, right? The one step after another. And you say, well, Pete, we have to be patient. And, you know, I mentioned this morning that we need to make sure it is sin. We may have to study it and stuff like that for a while. But but look at the context. Just look at the context of this. I mean, Jesus is concerned for people not to be in sin. He, he talks about temptations to sin in verses 7 through uh, 9. He's talking about dealing with sin in our lives. And the parable of the sheep, the person who is lost, it's not like, well, we'll get around to seeing about them sometime. It, the idea is, let's get over there. Let's see. Let's find it. Let's, let's, let's bring about help here. And so the, the context speaks to the urgency of addressing sin. And that's another thing that's, that a lot of times we don't realize um, some people think that if you look at the confession of faith, they people a lot of times think that the reason you exercise church discipline is to deal with those people in sin. But it's not to deal with them, it's to win them back. That's the purpose. It's to bring them back into the fold. But it has other purposes too. The honor of Christ and the honor of His church. Uh, the warning of other believers so that they don't sin. The Apostle Paul brings about, he, he addresses these things in 1 Corinthians. And you just want to say to elders, do y'all care? I mean, that when they drag their feet to address these things, do you even care about the honor of Christ? Do you even care about the others in the church who are being adversely influenced? Do you even care about the soul of this person who we're trying to win back? Do you even care? Well... That's the I, I would I think the confession of faith is beautiful in its summary of these things. So the step number one was to confront um, in sin, and then we come now to step number two. If necessary, step number two. If necessary, Christian concern is shared by a few. Okay, so this is what is given in verse sixteen. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I'll tell you something funny. Sometimes somebody has told me, <laughs> I'm, uh, I know I'm, anyway, I've had people tell me, okay, they don't tell me the details of it because it's none of my business, but they've got to confront somebody in their sin and they say, you know, pray for me. They don't tell me who it is or what it's about, but they've got to confront somebody with their sin. And I always tell them, okay, if you're going to do it and you're going to take somebody with you, get somebody good to take, take somebody good with you. In other words, if you're going to go to confront somebody in the church, take somebody in the church with you as a witness who's got a little bit of, um, you know, got a little a, a good reputation, got a little bit of, of uh, pull and stuff like that, just, just to, you know, just to, just to make the other people, not the, not the person, but if you need that witness later, if you go to the elders, you want to make the elders sweat. You want to hold them responsible. And if the elders are doing their job, they don't mind that. 
They don't mind that. They don't mind that at all. Okay? So what Jesus says here to do is, what he does is he quotes the law. And, and that is that you should have a witness. And uh, just because one person wants to accuse another person, that's not good enough. Jesus says you need to take uh, two or three along with you. And uh, they may end up eventually going to the church, is what it says in verse 17. So they all may go to the church. And so it's important to have these witnesses and do this correctly. These witnesses, uh, they are also Christian brothers or sisters who are concerned for the welfare of the one who's being confronted. And their goal is welfare. Again, that's our goal. Our goal is not to put down somebody or embarrass anyone, but to confront that person. And then um, their concern should be for that person to repent of their sin. And then it says in verse 16... Uh, if he doesn't listen you take it and uh, by their evidence and then it says in the first part of verse uh, that every charge may be established but the point is here that if he does listen let's say you take two or three witnesses and they say they confront the person and the person says you're right this is sin or they, maybe they say, okay, let's study this to see if it's sin. <clears throat> but if they acknowledge that it's sin and they repent, it's over. That's it. Step two's done. It's over. They repent. They encourage each other. They hug. They pray. And uh, that's the end of the process. But what if they don't repent? What if they say, you go take a hike. I don't give a rip what you think. Then we go into step three. And step three is necessary for the church, the church's concern and involvement. For the church's concern and involvement. So it says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, there are two things that I want to explain here tonight, and I'm hoping it'll be helpful. And it'll be something that you and I will be able to explain to others as we have opportunity in the future. Because there will be times of discipline when you'll discuss this in this congregation and in other congregations. And so there are two phrases here that I want us to be very well knowledgeable about. And this is one of them here in verse 17 for which we will be able to give a defense and an explanation. And the other one is in the last part down in verse 19. So the question I want to ask to us is who is the church that this is told to? I don't think this means that we'd be going to a congregational meeting and standing up or in worship services and saying, hey, preacher, during announcements, I want to bring up the sin of Sister Smith over here on the other side of the church. I don't think it means that. The church should be taken to mean certainly a group of people, but it is the leadership of the church that's probably what is being addressed. Now, I'm going to set about to approve that. So my point is that Christ has in mind the leadership in some capacity to which the sin of an individual would be reported. And I'm going to give you six good reasons why that is what I believe Christ has in mind about telling it to the church. The first reason is because of the nature of Israel's history. Because of the nature, nature of God's people and their history. 
What have we always seen? They were governed in a representative way, right? They had their elders. They had heads of household. They had tribal leaders. They had representatives of groups. The whole idea of representation was that way. Sometimes God might even say, and I appeared to my people or something of that nature. But really all he did was appear to the representatives. You go back and look at a lot of texts like that. It, it, uh, it's to the representatives, although the whole congregation had, was in view. So this is, this is just typical of what they knew in their history. Secondly, it is the mention of two or three later in verse 2 and 3. Uh, in verse 20. So if you the the second reason is the mention of two or three later in verse twenty. Okay, so you ask, what does that mean? What does that mean when he says that there are two or three are gathered in my name? What do you mean two or three? Well, I think Jesus, uh, the the point here is two or three in leadership positions, two or three in a representative position, two or three. That not that there's a whole group of in leadership, but that there are at least two or three, because two at least two or three are going to make a decision. So the second thing, the second reason that this is probably the leadership in the church is when Christ says two or three. He 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 wants at least there to be two or three leaders who are going to be deciding and hearing this case. What about number three or the third reason? The third reason is the language of verse 18. The binding and the loosing. The binding and the loosing of verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you look over at chapter 16. Go back just to chapter 16 and look at verse 19. And chapter 16, verse 19 Jesus says to this, he says this to his apostles, to the leaders. He says this to the leadership. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's he saying here? He's saying I'm giving you this power as decision makers in my church. And when you act in agreement with my word and my truth, then it's the same as I'm acting. So when elders receive people into the church upon profession of faith, that's, we see that not just that the elders are doing this or that the people are doing this. We see Jesus bringing these people into his church. And so the whole language here is the language of, of, uh, this, of, of leadership making these decisions that are agreeable to the decision that God is making. Okay? And so the leadership would be making a decision in regard to this person as to whether they were in sin or not. In John 20, Jesus says, listen to this. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. You see, that's a good parallel verse, isn't it? All right, number four. I did pretty good get six reasons here. Number four. And I don't even know if this is mine. I don't know where all this stuff came from, you know. And nothing's original with any of us. Number four, in deciding the disputes between the church members, Paul told Corinth that 
they were not to go to court with each other, but they were to find those who were wise among their number to settle a dispute. So Paul says, you got a dispute among somebody in the congregation about money, and y'all are going to court with each other. Why can't you just find some people there who know how to judge a decision and let them and let them decide it? I remember in my last pastor, we had something like that happen. We had we had some believers, and we said, look. Okay, y'all don't agree. Let's go ahead and <laughs> let's go ahead and hear this case, and let's go ahead and decide on this. I'm laughing because I don't think either side was happy with the decision. But anyway, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy. But the point that Paul was making is, we got no business doing this in front of the world. Can't, can't, can't we handle our own problems without going before the world? Another fifth reason, the Council of Jerusalem. Why is that there? Because in Acts 15, we have a council of leadership. We have leaders coming together. They act in an authoritative way. They make decisions for the whole church. But we see the church there represented in leadership. And then sixthly, the elders by office are men who rule in the church. That's the nature of the office of elder. A teenager who believes in Jesus takes the Lord's Supper, but that doesn't mean that they should be voting on cases of excommunication and stuff like that. They are fully a part of the body of Christ. But the leadership of the church are those, are those elders. They are described as those who rule. That's what they're supposed to do. They're to govern in the church. They are called shepherds and guards. And shepherding is one of the main things about shepherding is to rule and to guard the flock. And that's a big deal in the New Testament where shepherds are called that. You and I a lot of times think about shepherds in a sort of a, you know, they're ministering to our souls like a shepherd takes care of sheep and stuff like that. But actually the concept of that it includes that. But the con- one of the biggest concepts of that is that the shepherd's in charge. He's in charge of the sheep. He's given direction. Here's where we're going to pasture today. Here's where we're going to eat today. And, 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 and they're giving care to the sheep. I'm not denying that. But the, in the Old Testament, you have the kings referring to themselves, or God referring to the shepherds of Israel. And he's primarily talking about those in leadership position rulers as the kings so uh, in our book of church order our government provides for this the telling it to the church means to present this matter to the elders of the church and that is that is uh, what our book of church order is that's the book of church order in the PCA and book of church order in the OPC and that is the um seems to be most evidently the teaching of Scripture. So it would be the leadership. Now, the third point is uh, step four uh, of this Christian confrontation. If necessary, they, a person can be cut off from among God's people. If necessary, a person is cut off from among God's people. And that is if the person refuses to repent. And if, the last part of verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here is a person who stubbornly refuses to turn from his sin or her sin. He or she may admit to it 
they may even say they're sorry and ask for forgiveness but they uh, but to truly listen is to turn from their sin in other words in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul confronted this guy who was fooling around and living with his father's wife when when he was doing all that it wasn't enough for him to say yeah I guess I shouldn't have done that I'm sorry that wasn't enough they had to break he had to break off that relationship he had to repent of that relationship and break that relationship so a person refusing to repent would be the person who would be considered as a Gentile or a tax collector and these were people who were not recognized as being a part of the kingdom of God they were just they were recognized as being outside the kingdom of God and so this is basically what we mean by excommunication and that's what this is that's what this means so you begin in verse 15 dealing with the person as a brother but if he stubbornly refuses to repent then by verse 17 he is viewed as one who not who is not a christian William Hendrickson says because of his own stubbornness he has lost his right to church membership and it has now become the church's painful duty to make this declaration in order that even this severe measure of exclusion may with God's blessing result in the man's conversion this is what Paul is calling for in 1 Corinthians 5 he said to the church at Corinth Paul didn't follow the book of church order. He was an apostle. He didn't have to follow the book of church order. Some, there are many times in the pastor that I wished I could deal with stuff because stuff was so plain I could just be like Paul. We, have a, we had a book of church order that had a real detailed process and it was written to protect the accused. And, and, and so if it's handled correctly, it does protect the accused. That doesn't mean that other churches haven't still butchered it and other elders uh, haven't butchered it because they have. But it was designed to protect the accused. But when Paul had this guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who was messing around with his father's wife, he just said, look, I've already delivered this guy over to Satan. Y'all need to deal with it there, but I've already done it too. It's not done because the person isn't perfect. It's not done because others are without sin. It's done because the person refuses to repent, from which all Christians should, all Christians should be willing to turn from their sin and repent. It doesn't mean that they're going to live a perfect life, but they resolve... They revolve, They renounce that sin. They they uh, resolve to fight against that sin. They do fight against that sin. And so, to treat a person as one who is not a Christian also does not mean that we are cruel to them or we have nothing to do with them or anything like that. But we just let them know that we don't. We show them love, but we don't approve of their sin. And so we act toward them in a way that is uh, pleasing before God to show them love, but to not agree with their sin. Um, I remember one time I had to deliver um, an excommunication letter to someone and... um, this person was a close personal friend and I said I have a letter here from the elders of excommunication and they said okay I, I expected you did and I said can I give you a hug and he said yes and there was 
not repentance on the part of this person but there was a love that we shared and that person knew in no uncertain terms that I didn't agree with what they were doing and how they were living and that person eventually repented of their sin but um, we can show love and not agree with sin at the same time the other thing we should be very careful to do is to support the elders when they have to take this action when they take an action we have to support them and we also have to support other churches when they do that to uh, unless we have reason to believe that they have not acted biblically in what they have done one of the problems today is or I don't even know if anybody even thinks about church discipline anymore very few do but um, one of the problems with it is that a person will just go down the street and join another church and excommunication doesn't mean anything however it does mean something and it's very very serious it's very serious from this perspective if God's leadership has acted in agreeable in agreement with God's word it uh, is very serious and that person indeed has been cut off from the church and they need to repent of their sin we need to be very careful that we do not take lightly or that anyone doesn't take lightly what God has um, what, what has taken place and that brings me to the final point and that is that God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are always in full agreement with excommunication whenever it occurs agreeable to his truth he is always in full agreement with excommunication whenever it agrees agreeable to his truth look at verse 19 again I say to you if you two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done by them by my father in heaven Jesus says something about the father look at verse 20 for where two or three are gathered in my name there I am there I there am I among them that's Jesus verse 18 whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and so this includes the Godhead now I said I was going to say something about verses 18 through 20 we have two verses here which are among some of those that are most misinterpreted this morning I made reference to Matthew 7 1 about not judging and here are two verses that are regularly quoted to uh, and are misunderstood verse 19 is regularly quoted to encourage people to pray and they use it in the sense that if you can get two or three together to pray about something then we know that God will answer our prayers again I say if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven and so verse 20 is used to usually encourage small groups and Bible study groups and small groups of prayer and stuff like that for where two or three are gathered together in my name there I am among them and now someone says well isn't this these what these verses teach the fact is that there are many verses in scripture relating to prayer and rules 
about praying. And elsewhere in Scripture, we are given all kinds of verses that don't require that two or three are, that are together in order for us to be heard. Okay? Jesus prayed alone. Paul, uh, David prayed alone. All kinds of people pray alone. Elsewhere in Scripture, there are verses that promise the presence of God even when people are alone. The psalmist in 139, Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? I'm always in your presence. That's the whole point. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all his works. God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. The context here... So, so, no, so the first thing to say is this. It may sound real spiritual to say that about prayer. And it is true that God is with us when we have a small number of people together to pray. But that's not what the deal is here. Let's think about it from this standpoint. Just think about it from this standpoint. Jesus is talking about the lost sheep, gathering, uh, finding the lost sheep. He's talking about the importance of repenting of sin. He's talking about forgiveness and the importance of giving forgiveness. He's talking about the importance of confronting one another when there's sin in our lives. And then, so what does he do in all this? Does he stop in the middle and say, oh, let me give you a few words about prayer and just having a small number of people together. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on at all. Now, what's going on here is that these two or three people have to do with this whole thing of discipline, which is in this paragraph. I mean, he's talking about binding and loosing in verse 18, right? We're talking about leadership. He's talking about binding and loosing. And then he says, again, I say to you, if two or... If, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven where two or three are gathered in my name. There, there I'm, There's the representatives of God's people. There are the elders. There are these people who have heard this case and they have agreed with this case and they have, they, have, they have done the binding and the loosing. They have excommunicated this person or they found the person not guilty. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, when you make these decisions like this, relating to church discipline, when you make these decisions about uh, accusations against somebody, and you all are agreed, and you got two or three of you together as leadership, and you agree on this, I'm with you in this. It's the same as if I'm right there making that decision myself. That's the point of this. That's the point. And that's what he's saying. God approves of what you have done and this is the this is this is what's going on. The leadership has made a decision and Jesus is in this. And so I've pointed out there in my notes or in the notes the outline that this often is a common misinterpretation and application. Now a question might be asked, what about churches and leaders who abuse discipline? And there's a lot of abuse. I posted an article about the abuse of church discipline on Facebook this week. There is abuse. I've seen abuse where men and where women and men come to the elders and come to the pastor and they speak about sin. And the elders and the pastor don't take them seriously. They don't believe them. 
1 Corinthians 13 says, Love believes all things. They all take people at their word until they have reason to believe otherwise. But they don't do it. Are they the person that is accused of sin has a lot of power and so they don't they don't want to they don't want to upset the status quo and so they don't uh, they abuse discipline they abuse discipline and then that's um, that just becomes another problem in all this mess but they do abuse it and what another question might be asked is what of those disciplined rightly who ignore discipline and just go down and join another church and churches who receive them well they do this to the peril of their own souls they might say that the church that exercised discipline there's a bunch of idiots but maybe that's not the case at all maybe that discipline has been faithfully discharged and the church that receives them might think of themselves as being loving and kind and gracious and all that but that doesn't mean that they are it means that they are acting contrary to Christ and contrary to the the means that Jesus has given to reclaim this person you remember that's what happened in church at Corinth you remember Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he said you all are so messed up. You got some guy there who's fooling around with his daddy, with his daddy's wife, and you're you're acting like it's all okay. You pat them on the back, you ask them how they're doing, and all this kind of junk. This is ridiculous. And Paul's not being unloving. He's just telling it like it is. And the same thing is true of these churches who say, oh, we're loving and we're not pharisaical and all that. Actually, they are the real Pharisees because they are replacing God's law with their own. And then the final question is, what can I do to help those who lead and who must deal with these things? And those who lead wrongly need to be confronted with their sins. But those who try to lead faithfully, we should encourage them. We should pray for them. And we should encourage them. I hated, I hated dealing with church discipline. Of course, <coughs> I wanted to see people repent. And I wanted to see people reconcile to God. But I hated dealing with discipline. Let's pray.